John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, was a tremendous revival preacher. Once he went to preach a revival, and he preached for the first night on the theme of you must be born again. He came back the next night and he preached on the theme of you must be born again. came back on the third night and he preached on the theme you must be born again. And when he came back for the fourth night, the man asked him, said, Mr. Wesley, I noticed that every time you've been here this week, you keep preaching on the theme you must be born again. Why is that? Wesley replied, because, sir, you must be born again. John Wesley was exactly right. You must be born again. But why? What does it mean to be born again? Why do we have to be born again? How is someone born again? Jesus answers these questions in the passage we're going to look at today. So open your Bible to John chapter 3. We're going to start at the first, look at the first eight verses. We'll look at more throughout. But John chapter 3, if you stand to honor the reading of God's Word. John 3 and verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs and wonders you do unless God is with him. Jesus responded and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of the water, of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it's coming from and where it's going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. The title of the message is, You Must Be Born Again. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. We need you today to open our hearts and minds to receive this into our lives. Let your Spirit examine us to see if we have been born again. If we have, and Father, make that sure within our hearts that we would know. And then give us a burden for the lost. Give us a a passion to go and help make sure others are born again. Jesus' words can be taken at face value. You must be born again. There is no other way. There is no way to enter the kingdom. There's no way to go to heaven. There's no way to know you without being born again. And so give us a burden and a passion to do what we can to help cause the lost to be saved and the dead to be raised to new life in Christ. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to speak your word and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus was a master teacher with a particular message he brought about salvation. His message about salvation was very different than the, the standard message of the day. And because he was a master teacher, he always took advantage of every opportunity he had to tell someone about how to be saved, about what he was saying about salvation. In a lot of ways, what we see in John 3 is we're getting to overhear the master teacher teach someone about salvation and about how to be saved. Someone who has a a curious idea, who wants to, to know what it is to be saved. Now, we can sum up the whole of Jesus' teaching here with the phrase, You must be born again. This is our key point for the lesson. It's not only the title of the sermon and not only the theme of the passage. This is the the key idea for us to know. You must be born again. You. So it's all of us. It's not that person out there. It's not someone far away. It's you. It's me. It's everyone. We must be born again. Must be. Not should be, not it would be a good idea, not it would be what's best, not it would be an addition to your life, not it's a, a secondary issue. No, it's it's a must be born again. And then it's born again. This is what everyone must be. This is what you must be. This is what I must be. And if this is what we all must be. 
then we kind of need answers, I think, to three fundamental questions about this. Why must we be born again? What does it mean to be born again? How can we be born again? I'm going to do my best to answer these questions from this teaching of Jesus. And at the end of the message, I'm going to call on you to examine your life. And if you have never come to Jesus and been born again, I'm going to call on you to do so at that time. So the first question, why must we be born again? Now, this familiar passage all begins with a man named Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night to get some answers about who Jesus is, why he came, and what really he came to do. Jesus, though, again, as a master teacher and as God incarnate, comes and gets right at the very essence, right? So Nicodemus says, you have to have come from God. And Jesus responds by saying, you must be born again. Now, this would have been shocking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, by virtue of being a Jew, would have assumed he was a part of the kingdom of God. Right? You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, this would have been startling. His entire life, from the time he was old enough to understand, he had been taught just by virtue of being a Jew and being circumcised and being a good Jew, an observant Jew, he would have been part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, not so. You are not a part of the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Now, for us, we don't often think in terms of the kingdom of God. That was a very important phrase in Jewish line of thought and and in biblical theology. But it's not the way we typically think. We think in terms of be saved or go to heaven. So in our day, if we were to have asked Jesus, one of us were to go, we were over here, Jesus talking to someone now. What they might say, what Jesus might say is you cannot be saved. Unless you're born again, you cannot go to heaven unless you have been born again. And this idea is so important. Jesus repeats it again in verse seven. He is stating over and over to make sure Nicodemus understands you must be born again. So, again, the question is, obviously, this is important. Obviously, this is what we must be. But why? Why was Nicodemus not in the kingdom of heaven? Without being born again. Why will we not go to heaven. Unless we're born again. Well there are answers given to this question. In the interaction. First being religious. Doesn't save us. Now Nicodemus it says was a Pharisee. He was a very religious guy. Let me give you kind of a rundown. On the Pharisees. And about how religious Nicodemus was. The Pharisees were an exclusive club. Of religious, Jewish religious leaders. There were only 6,000 of them at one time throughout the Jewish world. To become one, you had to stand in front of at least three witnesses, pledge to devote your life to observing every detail of the law and the scribal law. They, so not only the law that, that God said, but the scribal law were the interpretations, the official interpretations of what the law meant. They had to fast. Twice a week, every week, they tithe the the tiniest amounts of their income down to if they grew something in the garden, they tithe even the smallest amounts of that. They had to dress a certain way. They had to keep their hair and their beard a certain way. They had to have certain things on their robes. And Nicodemus, by all accounts, would have done all of these things. And yet, despite how religious Nicodemus was, Jesus still started this conversation off to him by saying, you are not a part of the kingdom of God unless you are born again. What's important for us to understand with this is Nicodemus isn't religious in the wrong religion. Nicodemus is not a devout follower of Baal. Nicodemus does not worship Zeus. Nicodemus is a religious, devout follower of Judaism. He is following the Old Testament law to the very best of his ability. You know, when you talk to somebody about being saved, times I've talked to them, I've had people ask them if they were saved. And they'll say things like, well, I I go to church. Well, I, I was raised in that church over there. Well, I've been baptized. Well, I'm a very spiritual person. And really, what these answers are is just one way of saying, in my own way, I'm 
religious. And the point we have to take from this to understand is religion doesn't save us. You can be a member of this church. You can be an active, devout member of this church. You can tithe. You can have been baptized. You can show up at work days. But none of that will save you. Because you must be born again. Secondly, being moral doesn't save us. As a Pharisee, being moral was a natural outflow of Nicodemus's religion. Nicodemus would have been a good husband. He would likely have been a good father. He would have likely been a good neighbor. He would have helped the poor. That was expected of religious Jewish people. Any description you can give of what a a moral person is, what a good moral person ought to be, Nicodemus would have fit the bill. In fact, the, the Pharisees, what Nicodemus was, they were so good at, at, at life in general that one of the sayings among the Jews of the time is, if only two people were saved, one in all of the world, if only two people in all of history were ever saved, one of them would be a Pharisee. Because Pharisees were the, the ideal, this was the ideal of what a good Jewish person Ought to be. Now, chances are we all know people who are good moral people. They love their spouses, they're good neighbors, they're generous, they're helpful, they're kind, they pay their taxes, they take care of their children. They're just all around good moral people. They've never really sown their wild oats, they've never really done bad things that that other people might have done. And a problem with this very often is people who have that sort of moral character, they don't see a need for Jesus. Right? We, we talk about it in Isaiah. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone. Well, the average good moral person who is raised to have a moral code and raised to have moral character and is an adult that has moral character, they would read that and go, I guess Isaiah was a really bad guy. And he understood that. But I've never been that kind of a person. I've never done the kind of things that would cause me to say, woe is me, I'm undone. The reality is, morality can often form a sense of self-righteousness. Now maybe, Joe, maybe you needed Jesus because you were a terrible human as a child, but, but I wasn't that way. I don't, I don't need forgiveness. I don't need my sins to be atoned for. And and while the world, certainly we look at the world, we can say the world needs more good moral people. It's important to understand morality does not save. A good moral person is in just as desperate need of being born again as a vile immoral person. You must be born again. Again, thirdly, being knowledgeable of God's word doesn't save us. Look at verse 10. Jesus, Nicodemus, well, verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, you're a teacher of Israel. You truly do not understand these things. Now, the phrase teacher of Israel is a significant phrase. um, And it meant meant that Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. Now, in, in the Jewish synagogue, they didn't just let anyone teach. Uh, it wasn't like, hey, we have a, a hole and we need somebody to teach Sunday school. You're a warm body and you'll be here. Will you do it? Right? It wasn't like that. In order to teach in the synagogue, there were very strict rules you had to, to meet. Like you had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Not, and not, oh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Woohoo! No. Like the words of Genesis from start, from in the beginning to the end. All the words of Leviticus. They had to be able to quote all five books of the Bible, first five books of the Bible from memory. They, they spent their lives devoted to it as a Pharisee. Literally, his life was spent studying God's Word. If someone had a question, they didn't have Google. They didn't have commentaries. They had Pharisees and they had scribes. And they would ask them, 
What does this mean? What is the interpretation of this law? And, and Nicodemus would have known it well. He was a teacher. He was he had done enough, studied enough, understood enough that when they called on someone to teach, he was one of the guys they picked. And yet, despite all the facts that he has, all the knowledge he has of God's word, Jesus still says to him, you must be born again. You know, people who have been raised in church and Sunday school usually have a lot of knowledge about the Bible. Just even if you didn't pay attention, you just pick up a lot by osmosis. And that's good. I mean, I think it's good for people to know things about the Bible, to be able to quote verses, to be able to recite the books in order, to know the Ten Commandments and things like that. But all of that that knowledge of God's Word doesn't save us. But Jesus will later say, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me. Right? Knowledge of the Bible in and of itself doesn't save even someone who can answer doctrinal questions. Right? I, I, years ago, I, I read a quote by a guy, and, and he was being interviewed by this sort of liberal Christian magazine. And the, the, the one who was doing the interviewing asked him, he said, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like one of those fundamentalist, closed-minded Christians. And the guy being interviewed said, well, honestly, if you don't believe Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the son of the living God who died for the sins of the world and rose again on the third day, you are not in any meaningful sense a Christian. That's a great statement. Any conservative preacher we may know could take what I mean, and that's not a direct quote from God's word. That is reading what the Bible says applying it and making a doctrinal statement, an accurate doctrinal statement based upon a broad range of biblical knowledge. And the person who made that was an atheist. Not only an atheist, an anti-theist. Someone who, who was against religion in general. All that knowledge of the Bible, able to formulate accurate doctrinal thoughts about who Jesus was and why Jesus came, and yet did not come to Jesus and be saved. It is certainly good to have knowledge of God's word. But knowledge of God's word does not save. We must be born again. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. And what he has done for us. Religion is largely about what I do. I come to church. I give a tithe. I do this. Therefore I'm saved. But that's not what salvation is. Morality is about what I do. I don't cheat on my wife. I take care of my kids. I work hard on my job. Therefore, I'm saved. But that doesn't save us. Bible knowledge is the same way. I have studied. I have memorized. I have done this. And yet, it doesn't save. Salvation comes through Jesus. And Jesus alone. Everything about salvation rises and falls on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. A person may believe in God and still be lost. A person may actually even feel like love toward their idea of God and yet be lost. A person may believe in angels or miracles or prayer and still be lost because they have not come to Jesus to be saved. Salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. There is no eternal life apart from Jesus. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. There is no being a part of the kingdom of God apart from Jesus. We must be born again because nothing but the blood of Jesus can save us. So what does it mean to be born again? Before we look at this, we see Jesus gives the answer. This is what kind of, in a sense, is what Nicodemus is asking. Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus is like, how is that possible? How, how can you be born again? Were you going to enter a second time in your mother's womb? I mean, that can't be possible, can it? 
So Jesus begins to launch into the role of the Spirit in salvation. Jesus said in verse 5, truly, truly, unless someone is born of water, that's the physical birth, and of the Spirit, that's the new birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Uh, Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from and where it's going. So it is with those who have been born of the Spirit. So to be born again is not, it's less about what we do and more about what is done to us. It is what the Holy Spirit does in us and through us and for us to cause us to be born again. But the Holy Spirit is active in every aspect of our salvation. But Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father which sent me draws him. The Father draws through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, according to John 16. And the Holy Spirit convicts us about three things. Sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. And what the Holy Spirit does, the convict is convince, is my favorite way to say that. Because convict, a lot of times we get the idea that just means make us feel guilty. And there is an element of that. But we all know people who can make you feel guilty and you haven't done anything wrong, right? This isn't that. The idea of convict is in a court of law. You're guilty regardless of how you feel about it. What the Holy Spirit does is He convinces us that's true. And He convinces us first of sin. That we have sin. I don't know about you, but I spent a good portion of my life not really thinking I had done much wrong myself. If you had asked me, was I perfect? I would have said, no, probably not. But I'm certainly not really a bad guy. I'm not a bad kid. I don't do a whole lot wrong. What causes someone who goes through their life thinking they're a good moral person, thinking they're fine the way they are, to begin to understand their sin, that they have sinned against God? It's the Holy Spirit. He convinces us, not you're, you're, you're not a good person, not really. You have sinned, not against people, but against a holy God. And because you have sinned against a holy God, you are unrighteous. Right? That's the second part, righteousness. The Holy Spirit says, you have no righteousness. You did this, therefore you're not a good person. You're not okay. You are undone. You have sinned against a holy God. You are guilty in the courts of heaven. You have no righteousness of your own. To put it in the words of Isaiah, the Holy Spirit makes us realize our own righteousness is like filthy rags. And then there's a moment of despair. I'm a sinner. And I have no righteousness. And then the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus. Who can give us true righteousness because He has died He has risen and He has gone to the Father. And we know Jesus is real. And Jesus is calling us to come to Him. To receive His salvation. And in Him we find redemption and righteousness and the forgiveness of sins. And then the Holy Spirit also reveals the judgment that's to come. And in a way what He does is He makes us understand here's your guilt. Here's your lack of righteousness. Here's where righteousness can be found. If you reject this, here's what's coming. There's a judgment to come. And he he brings us to the place where we then have to choose. Am I going to, to flee to the Jesus the Holy Spirit is revealing to me? Or am I going to go on in the way I'm going and face this judgment to come? I, I, I don't know how you are. But on the night I, I got saved... The overwhelming thought in my mind and in my heart was what a sinner I was. And the fact hell was real and I was going there. I mean, that was... I, I, I mean, if I'm just being ruthlessly honest, I did not flee to Jesus because I loved Jesus at that moment. I fleed to Jesus because I feared hell. And I was going to hell. And Jesus was the only one who could save me from that hell. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He shows us what is waiting if we reject Jesus. But He urges us to believe in Jesus. And if 
we believe in Jesus, if we say, this is what's before me, I'm going to Jesus, and we go to Jesus and we cry out to Him, the Holy Spirit then begins to do a work in our heart, being born again. Or Paul will call it in Titus, regeneration. Or in Corinthians, being made into a new creation. And as we cry out with our limited abilities and our flawed words and our not knowing what to say. When I got saved, all I said over and over and over again was, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I didn't know any snazzy sinner's prayer. I didn't know anything other than I was a sinner and I wanted God's mercy. And in that moment when we're crying out and we're believing and we're confessing and we're just crying out to Jesus to save us. The Holy Spirit then comes upon us and He he makes us into a new creation. And He fills us with Himself and we get a, a new heart and a new spirit. And we become, again, a new creation in Christ. At that time, all the old things have passed away. All of the new things are now there. We are, I mean, we are, we still look the same. We still have some things that are the same about us. But in in God's perspective, in God's economy, we are entirely different. Everything about us has changed in that moment. And and it's all a work of the Spirit. And, And to me, this can be a humbling thing and an encouraging thing. It's humbling because let's say you come to the altar. I came to an altar. I came to this altar at this side of the church. I knelt right here at this particular spot at this altar. I didn't come and kneel at the altar and say, God, I'm really doing better. God, I'm turning over a new leaf. I've I've really been a crummy human being. I'm going to get up and I'm going to be a good person. And now I'm going to go out and I'm going to do good. It's not what I did. Instead, I knelt and I cried out to God and and He he fixed me. Now here's where that's humble. I mean, literally all I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made my salvation necessary. And then I responded to the Spirit calling me to salvation. And I cried out to the one who saved me. And he did all of the work. I didn't do it. We don't contribute to our salvation. We bring the sin that makes our salvation necessary. God essentially does everything else. We just respond and go along with Him. There's a humbling part of that. As, as Americans, we like to we pull ourselves up. We fix ourselves. We, we do it. Yeah? Not in this case, we don't. And if we can't accept that, we can't be born again. But there's also something so encouraging about that. Because even as a young person, I wasn't that young, I was 19, I knew I couldn't do it. I mean, I wasn't able to do that. I talked about in Sunday school this morning, the idea of turn the other cheek. It's just like not a natural thing to me. And I mean, there was nothing what I knew in the Bible about what I was supposed to live. I didn't think I I never had any indication. I'm going to get up and do all of this and I'll I'll square myself away. I knew I couldn't do all of that. And there are some people, and they say, well, I, would, I, would, I want to be saved. I feel being called in the conviction, but I, I don't know if I can do it. And the answer is, you're right. You can't do it, and that's good news. Because you don't do it. The Spirit does it in you. The idea of being saved isn't, I reform my life. The idea of being saved is, my life is reborn through the Spirit and faith in Jesus. That's encouraging. This is what it means to be born again. To follow the Spirit's leading to Jesus. To cry out to Jesus and for the Spirit to make us new as Jesus forgives us. It is all a work of the Spirit. It is not anything we can do at all. We must be born again. So how can we be born again? The Spirit works. The Spirit calls. What do we do in that moment? Well, we've talked about the idea that salvation is only found in Jesus. And salvation is only found as the Spirit draws us. Why is that? 
Why can I not do it on my own? Why can I not be religious enough or moral enough or turn over a good leaf enough to do it? The the answer is found in Jesus. Who he is and what he's done. Well, actually, it starts before that, though. It starts in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, created man and placed them in the garden. And he gave them this one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden. The devil came along and he said, hey, doesn't that look good? And Eve said, I think it does. And she ate it and she gave it to Adam. And they they rebelled against God at that point. They died spiritually, and every person after them was born resistant to the rule of God and separated from God, including us. But we were not only born resistant to the rule of God, we have resisted the rule of God. Right? I mean, we're not guilty because of what Adam and Eve did thousands of years ago. We're guilty because of what we did last week. So how do we do about that? Well... Again, we can't do anything about it. So Jesus, who who is God, left the glories of heaven and he came to earth to be born in a miraculous way. He grew up and he never sinned. And throughout his life, he did miracles and he taught amazing things and he helped people and he tried to set aright things that had gone wrong because of the fall. Despite all the good Jesus did, he was rejected by the religious rulers of his day. The Pharisees, like Nicodemus, though not Nicodemus himself. He was rejected by them. He was taken and betrayed and turned over to the Romans, who beat him mercilessly, tortured him, mocked him, and then ultimately took him out to a place and nailed him to a cross, lifted him up and let him suffocate and die In the midst of public humiliation. But the death on the cross wasn't the loss or the defeat it appeared to be. It wasn't a surprise. This was the reason Jesus came. He came for the purpose of dying on the cross. He was the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, from the foundations of the world. And in his death, the physical punishment he endured, while terrible, was not the worst of it. While he was on the cross, it turned dark as God turned away from him. And Jesus, for the first time, experienced separation from the Father. And in that moment, all of the wrath of God against your sin and mine was placed upon him. He drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. And he essentially endured hell. Eternal hell for us. And he endured eternal hell. Until he had paid all the penalty all of our sin had earned. And then he cried out, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost. He was taken, was laid in a tomb, and he stayed there for three days. But he didn't stay there forever. He rose again on the third day, victorious over the grave. He ascended into heaven. And now he ever lives to make intercession for us. Verse 17 says... God did not send His Son into the world to judge or condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He came to bring salvation. He came to bring, to to free us from what we could not free ourselves from, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Salvation is... From Jesus alone. Because only Jesus dealt with sin. Only Jesus paid the penalty of sin. Now, here's the thing. This is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus. This is a part of what the Spirit reveals to us in that moment of conviction. And a story like that demands a response from us. How do we respond to the message? How do we respond to a God who loved us that much? How do we respond to a Savior who died and a Spirit who calls? Verse 16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that everyone who what believes in Him 
They'll not perish, but have eternal life. This is how we respond to the gospel in order to be saved, to be born again. We believe in Jesus or we believe on Jesus. We are born again through the Spirit as we believe in Jesus. Now, belief here, though, in all throughout the New Testament, it calls on us to believe in Jesus. It's not, it's not in a general sort of way. And this, I think, is where we get crossways at times. Loads of people believe in God that are not going to be in heaven. They have not been born again. It's not enough to believe there is a God out there somewhere. It's not enough to believe there was a Jesus who who lived and died. What we believe is very specific and very narrow. It is a tiny little area. We believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We believe Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And we believe His death and resurrection It's the only hope we have. That's the very narrow part. It's not, I believe in Jesus and I'll be a good man. And I'm saved. No, I I don't add to it. Jesus. It's, I believe the only reason I'll stand in heaven and stand before Jesus and not be condemned will not be because of of what I have done or not done. It will be because of what Jesus has done alone. Faith, believing in Jesus to receive eternal life, to be born again, requires us to believe nothing good we have ever done or ever will do merits our salvation. We are saved by Christ alone. A fellow by the name of Paul David Tripp says, If you obey God for a thousand years, you are no more accepted than when you first believed. Your acceptance is based upon Christ's righteousness and not yours. You see, this is where faith falls short for many. They believe in a God. They may even believe in the God of the Bible. That there was a Jesus who lived and died. And a person ought to believe in that God. But when it comes to, why are you going to go to heaven? Why are you a part of the kingdom of God? Why are you saved? It's, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I go to church. I know quite a bit about the Bible. I've taught lessons. I, they begin to list all the things they've done. They're not truly believing in Jesus. And, make no mistake, they are not saved. Any human who trusts in anything they have done for their salvation is not saved. We are saved through faith alone in Christ alone. Plus nothing, minus nothing, the end. Believing in Jesus requires us to let go of our self-righteousness. I did not earn One iota of God's mercy or grace or goodness. It requires us to let go of our self-sufficiency. Nothing I can do causes me to be saved or adds to my salvation. Because the reality is we cannot cling to self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and the cross of Christ at the same time. We must let go of one to grab hold of the other. It would be... Like a person, and I heard this story, and I wish I could remember who it was. I think I know, but I'm not sure, so I'm not going to say. They were on a ship that crashed. This is a true story. A ship sank in the ocean, and they had, it was like in the Civil War time, so they had bags of money, bags of gold, in fact. And so it wasn't a credit card with all their money. They had this gold, and it was their life fortune. And the ship sank, and they were holding on to the the gold, and they were trying to kick with their feet, paddle with one arm, but hold on to their bag of gold. And somebody came along and was trying to reach down to save them, but they couldn't get a grip on it. And the only way they could pull them up would be if they let go and reached up. And, and this person refused to let go of their gold, to let go of their money. And so they, they drowned. 
That's a good picture of salvation. We're drowning in judgment. We're clinging to self-righteousness. We're clinging to the sort of self-sufficiency uh, to our sin. And Jesus is reaching down. And what we have to do is let go of one to reach up and let Him grab us and pull us up. But if we don't let go, we let it drown us in judgment. Faith in Jesus means letting go of self-righteousness, letting go of self-sufficiency so we can grab on to the cross as our only means of salvation. This is how we respond. This is what hap- This is what leads to our being born again. When we believe on Jesus in that way, we are born again in that moment. Now there are two extra thoughts, implications of this faith, this reality for us to know. We'll cover them quickly. Everyone is either in or out. One of the frequent criticisms of Christianity is that disciples of Jesus are always condemning people. Right? You're lost. You're out. You're not saved. But this isn't an accurate accusation. Look at verse 18 at what Jesus says. The one who believes in Him is not judged, or most translations say condemned. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. According to Jesus, those who don't believe in this way are already condemned. So so disciples of Jesus pointing this out are not condemning anyone. We're only pointing out the facts. If you come to me after service and you say there's a mustard stain on your tie, You haven't put that mustard stain there. You're not making an accusation against me that's not real. All you're doing is revealing to me the truth. There is a mustard stain on my tie. In the same way, when a disciple of Jesus tells someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, my friend, I love you, but you are condemned. We're not condemning them. We are telling them what is already true about them. That is who they are. Every person, look at this at verse 18. The one who believes is not judged. The one who does not believe is judged. That statement is true about every person in the world. Those who believe are not condemned. Those who who believe are not condemned. Those who do not believe are condemned. Every human alive falls into one of those two camps. Condemned, not condemned. Saved, lost, born of the flesh, born of the spirit, in or out. There's no in between. No one is half in. No one is sort of there. You are one or the other. Contrary to our culture, this is binary. There is one or the other. That's it. So this is true for us. Right now, every one of us in here, we are either in or out, saved or lost. Born of the flesh, born of the spirit, condemned or not condemned. Everyone, and then everyone we know. Secondly, everyone decides about Jesus. Every person who hears the message of Jesus decides about Jesus. And they decide for or against. There's no neutral. Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. This is the judgment. Light has come in the world, and people love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Every person chooses for Jesus or chooses against Jesus. Those are the only two options there are. They choose for Jesus and go into the light, or they choose against Jesus and they remain in the darkness. And again, those are the only two choices. Now, there are two primary ways people choose darkness over light. One is some people love sin more than the Savior, more than the idea of salvation. Since Jesus died for sin, it makes sense. Those who believe in the one who died for sin will not live in the things that sent their Savior to the cross. had an atheist friend once. We were talking about the gospel. He said, I don't believe. I'm not a Christian in any way. But I know if you believe it, you've got to live it. It made no sense for him that if you would claim to believe in Jesus, you would live 
and pleasure in those things that sent Jesus to the cross. He understood the very basics. It made good sense. If you believe in Jesus, you ought to live in a way that would please Jesus. The reality is some people, they love their sin. So they they come to that understanding in that moment of conviction. There's their sin. And they realize if I... If I go to Jesus, I have to let go of this. And they choose this instead. I mean, imagine someone is in church hearing this message today. And yet they're living in an adulterous relationship. They hear this message and they know if they come to Jesus and get saved, they have to break off their adulterous relationship because you can't be an adulterous disciple of Christ, right? You have to let go of that to come to this. But they're going to have to choose, aren't they? Are they going to choose this adulterous relationship or are they going to choose the Savior who saves them from the judgment to come? And it becomes a, really I guess a choice of value. What do they value most? Do they value sinful relationship? they value the salvation of the Savior? And what they value most, they choose in that moment. Always. Always. The person who rejects coming to Jesus... Because they hold on to their sin, they have chosen. I love my sin more than I love salvation, more than I love the Savior, more than I love any of that. And they remain in darkness and they never come into the light. Now, others choose self-sufficiency. We talked about the need to lay down self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. We have to let go of it. Some people can't do that. Pride is a a thing, right? Pride exalts itself. I, I, I can fix myself. I'm not that bad. And in that moment where the Spirit has brought this deep conviction, I have to acknowledge I am that bad. I can't fix it. I can't undo it. I I have to go to Him and let Him save me. And the reality is for some people, the cost is, is too high. They won't humble themselves. They choose to hold on to their self-sufficiency. They choose to hold on to their self-righteousness. And they stay in darkness. Rather than coming into the light. But but with both cases, they decided. This morning, you and I, we will make a decision about Jesus. We will decide what we value most. Do we value the Savior or our sin? Do we value the Savior or our self-sufficiency? Do we value the Savior or our self-righteousness? We will decide about Jesus this morning, every one of us. We will decide for Him or against Him, but we will make a decision. The salvation Jesus died to provide is for all. God did not send His Son to the world to condemn the world, but the whole world through Him might be saved. But the person must believe. They must choose Jesus in that moment where the Spirit is dealing with them. Believing in Jesus involves the heart, the mind, and the will. The mind understands the message. The heart says, I want salvation. I want to be born again. I want to be different. But the will, the will has the final say. I spent years, years, Holy Spirit dealing hard with me. I understood. I I wanted to be saved, but there was sin that I wanted to do. I wasn't actually doing it. I wasn't old enough to do it. I was going to get older, join the army, and go and do all of these things. And so I was holding on to the, the possibility of what could be. And so the every every week for years, I chose my sin. Over the Savior. I made my decision. I understood. I wanted. I was deeply convicted. But I chose to remain in darkness. This morning it is entirely possible for you to understand everything we've talked about. For you to be deeply moved by this. To say, I I want what Jesus offers. But neither of those will save you. You must choose Jesus. You must go to Him. There is a difference between understanding and being born again. There is a difference between being convicted and being born again. 
And the difference is in what we do in that moment. Those who understand, those who desire, but cling to their sin and don't take hold of Jesus, stay lost, stay judged, stay condemned. But those who understand and want and reach up and say, Jesus, take my hand and save me. Those people are born again and they'll never be the same. So let's stand. Bow your head and close your eyes. And I do, I want you to think about this. Today, at this moment, you and I, we are in or out, saved or lost, condemned or not condemned. And if you're on the outs, the Savior is calling through the Word, through the Spirit this morning. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you're here today and you're ready to take hold of what Jesus offers you, I am going to ask you to raise your hand as a way of saying, I'm letting go of my sin. I'm letting go of my self-righteousness. I'm letting go of my self-sufficiency. Jesus, pull me up. I don't want to drown in this. And take a few minutes and pray. If you raised your hand to declare your belief in Jesus, your desire to be saved, cry out to Him. Confess your faith to Him. Ask Him to save you and cause you to be born again. You can come to the altars. You can pray where you are. But let's just spend a few minutes crying out to Jesus. Father, today we come and we ask you to guide. Lord, we do want our minds to be opened so we would know the truth and our hearts to be convicted so we would be aware of your calling us. Father, let us respond. Let us believe in Jesus so we can be born again. Maybe we're here today, Lord, and we, and we are saved. We have been born again. We have let go. And maybe this would be a good message for us to take and apply to those we love and care about. They too are in or out, lost or saved, condemned or not condemned. There's no in between. Let us see what's actually there to the best of our abilities and let our hearts ache over it. Let us go to them and talk to them about Jesus. Call on them to believe, to trust and rest in Him and be saved. Have your way in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.